Aloha, you're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. The NBA draft is notoriously difficult to accurately predict. Can analytics help us be right more often? Author, uh, author Seth Partnow is on the pod today to talk about his new book, The Midrange Theory, and to answer questions about how to get better at predicting which prospects will shine in the NBA draft. Let's go. All right, and we're back on the NBA Big Board podcast. Thanks for making NBA Big Board your first listen every episode. We are free and available on all platforms. This episode of NBA Big Board is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. McDonald's has always been more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's an official community center. Big thank you to our friends at McDonald's for always being there. I'm loving it. Seth, welcome to the show. You got a new book coming out this week. It's called The Midrange Game, Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics. Seth is an NBA analyst at The Athletic, and former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, we're going to talk some analytics today. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you're not the first person to make this make this mistake, actually, in the, the media I've done this week. But it's the midrange theory, not the midrange game. It's uh, the... Uh, the, the title is uh, intended as an homage to uh, one of the first uh, albums I owned, actually, on CD, which is uh, Tribe Called Quest's uh, The Low End Theory. So that's sort of where it's, it's been kicking around in my mind as what would be a cool name for a basketball project for a number of years, and I finally got to use it. Well, uh, that's embarrassing that I got the name of the book wrong right off, right off the get. Not sure why the mid-range game is uh, what came to mind, but I like that, the mid-range theory um, as well. It's probably apt for a lot of reasons as we're you know diving into the, the analytics. And Seth, I know that there's a lot of things that you can talk about, and, uh, and you talk a lot about this book and really lay out uh, the role that analytics plays in a modern uh, NBA front office, which I think there's just so much misinformation out there from the average fan that that follows the NBA, even even a lot of times from players about what what is happening and what isn't happening around analytics. I um I to, to prep for this, I actually went back. I, I've read it before, but I rewatched Moneyball, which was you know the the sort of seminal book about analytics in baseball. Uh, got made into a movie with Brad Pitt. I'm not sure whether the mid-range theory will get will get Brad Pitt in a movie or not, but it would be <laughs> it would be great if it did. And one of the the things that like stood out to me after rewatching it again is just the absolute pushback um, that Billy Bean gets gets from everyone. And then when it's successful, he doesn't get the credit. Uh, Art Howe, the coach, uh, gets gets the credit, uh, even though he's fighting him, uh, you know, the entire way at first and. And so I think, you know, the first question that, that, that I want to ask you is why did you write the book and, and what was the message that you're trying to convey to NBA fans by, by putting this book together? Obviously, you have experience working in NBA front office doing this exact work. Uh, why did you write it? Uh, the short version of why I wrote it is uh, the publisher, Triumph Books, said, hey, Seth, write a book. Um, and and uh, I... I sort of had an idea to write a book at some point in my life, but I didn't have sort of the uh, the the genesis of it, the treatment of it together. But they said, no, we want you to write a book, come up with something. And so that, well, I guess I'm writing a book, so what am I writing a book about? Um, so I basically I, I wanted to do a little bit of, of demystify, demystification of what uh, sort of analytics actually is. 
it's it's been built into sort of a, a boogeyman that's changing basketball in fundamental ways and making it less enjoyable and this and that. Uh, when in many cases it's just um, in the words of of the CEO of Second Spectrum, it is uh, is fancy counting. It's you're we're we're collating at a base level. We're collating a lot of the stuff that we've always sort of known is important about basketball, but we've never really had the ability to track consistently at scale. And so much of of, of what analytics is is just a better understanding of. You know who shoots well on open versus cover jump shot. What's an open versus cover jump shot? These sort of empirical questions that we um, we have sort of a sense of what the answer is, but now we can actually really interrogate that and come up with something a bit more substantive than just sort of our intuitions and uh, sort of helplessly biased observations. That actually seems to be right at the key of this, right? To me, analytics is a, in part about a- accountability. Uh, you know, I, I've covering the draft for as long as I have and talking to so many people in the NBA, uh, there's so much of my gut tells me or my my intuition tells me or my experience out in the scouting world watching this guy sort of tells me. And then if it's wrong, it just sort of moves moves on to the next guy. And um, there's no real rigorous analysis of how did we get things wrong or why did we get things wrong or how did we miss on this person or how our assumptions uh, might actually be biased in a way um, that are affecting things. It just sort of rolls over. And so one of the things that it seems to me that's important about analytics is it, it, it gives us something um, to, write, to, to hold us accountable, to, to look at why the things that we think are happening are actually happening. And sometimes our intuition can be right. Sometimes it can be terribly wrong. Um, but analytics actually gives us something more objective uh, right to to be able to sort of measure against. I, to some degree, I do I do want to put like I, I always want to push back against the notion that sort of statistical analysis, analytics, what have you, is objective because there's all kinds of of, of choices that we've made in you know what stats we're tracking, what how we're building a model that kind of can can sort of push bias through a system. So I don't want to necessarily say it's objective in that it is a ground truth, but it is consistent in that you, if you set up a system, um, the answers will be the same if you give the same inputs no matter what. And so that that does at least allow for some you know testing of sort of, I think this is important, let's see how it plays out. And then you can kind of look back in five years and say, yeah, no, that was right more often than it was wrong. Or it was like, no, that was nothing. I was just... I was over-indexing on sort of one player for whom that worked. Yeah, of course. And uh, there is always, when you you ever sort of think about this sort of quantitative data, we still as human beings have to to sort of measure, decide what we're going to measure and what we're not going to measure. Uh, and, And that, of course, can be sort of hopefully biased as well. What was the experience like working with the Bucks as far as, you know, you're doing your work uh, as a director of basketball research. You're one voice of many uh, within an organization that includes a front office, that includes a coach, that includes a pretty active ownership group uh, in in Milwaukee uh, as well. How did you find the information that that you were creating and giving to the Bucks? How, How was it received? Um, and I just add, there's 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 even more information streams than that. I mean, obviously, medical is a is a huge in in in, in draft these days. Um, so many of when guys fall, it's like, yeah, well, because 
he's got arthritic knees at 20 is sort of is 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 often the answer or or something of that nature um and and you know background information stuff like that um no so how does it play in with the stream um i think it's a it's a very difficult task because you're getting information as the ultimate decision maker you're getting information from 8 10 12 different streams and they're all in different units and so how to weigh those is is um is difficult in terms of how analytic information is received statistical information um some of it's pretty straightforward um i think um the more basketball-y you can almost make the information the easier it is like i think the the easiest things for people to pick up on were stuff you do like three-point shooting projections and um that's actually one area where it's it's sort of understood well enough that you can get beyond just like a point projection so i think this guy will be a 35 percent three-point shooter and actually something more useful in say like oh in our analysis there's a 20 percent chance he's a 40 percent shooter which is i think given how variable, you know, how un, un, unpredictable it can actually be, giving a, a better sense of how likely this guy is to be really good at that was more useful. Um, other areas were just, like, inherently harder for people to um, kind of latch on to. I, I think some one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is the danger of player comps. And if it was up to me, I would never give them, just because that the, the, the anchoring to that, not just who that player was as a prospect, but who he became as an NBA player is so strong that you almost can't see anything else. And then if you comp a guy that just doesn't see, okay, wait, you're like this player's nearest comp as a college player is Paul George. Oh, come on. This is a, this is a mid second round pick and you're comparing him to Paul George. Like, no, I'm comparing him to Paul George at Fresno state. That's a different thing than, you know, multiple time, all NBA Paul George, but it's just, you can't get past that. Yeah, that, that does seem, see, see, one of the things that I hate the most right around doing the draft as well as player comps for, for very, very similar reasons. And it, and it seems to me, again, this is where our bias comes in too. And a lot of times a player who looks like a player, like physically is is where we almost gravitate with a lot with a lot of those things. So you see Evan Mobley uh, at USC and he sort of looks like Chris Bosh um, out there. And it's just quick to sort of make the Chris Bosh comparison. Now, I'm not sure statistically that that was a terrible comparison um, to make to Evan Mobley. But the first reason we make it is just based off of a very, a very quick, you know, physically they look similar. Uh, you know, to each other. And, and so I, I think it's it's really, really hard to let go of all of that. And I think one of the points that you make in the book, too, is if we're really doing like statistical comps, a lot of time there's statistical comps is a guy that you would never even remember uh, playing college basketball. That's the closest one. And that's not particularly helpful either. Yeah, it's it's there's so many guys they could be com- comped to. And you want to be the balance between, you know, making a useful comparison and not you know, being overly uh, optimistic about how good the guy is going to be because you're only comparing him to the, you know, it's the, uh, I, I, I imagine you're familiar with the, uh, the, you know, the World War II plane example of the survivorship bias where it's all like, oh, the, these planes, the, none of the planes that landed with damage ever had hits in the engine, so we don't need to armor the engines. Like, no, they, those were the planes that crashed. So they didn't come back. Um, and so if you're, you're comparing only the players that made it, then you're you're sort of you're missing the you know the seventy five percent that this guy might be like that indicate why he might not make it. But that balance is so hard because if you're comparing him and you come up with some guy who graduated from Creighton in two thousand five, okay, that's that's who his player comp is. Who's that? It's not useful. 
One of the things that I thought was was fun uh, in your chapter about the draft is I was a little bit surprised at how you kind of let off the chapter, which was essentially, look, the draft is almost impossible to predict. And here's all the reasons and variables um, that exist that really almost have nothing to do with analytics um, that, that just make this so hard. These are human beings that we're trying to project. And, you know, here's a litany of, of things that could go wrong um, in that process. None of them actually even have to sort of do with analytics. And I, I think it's one of the things that's so interesting, you know, having covered the draft for so long and, and worked on my process and talked to so many teams about their process and their scouting process and how they sort of put it all together that despite the fact the best scouts that I know, um, the ones with the best track records get it wrong on a, on a consistent c- consistent basis. And I'm not sure that it has anything to actually say about their, their scouting acumen. This is just a highly unpredictable um, thing to do, but it's so important to an NBA franchise, especially an NBA franchise in a small market that's trying to rebuild, right? The Bucks aren't there. They're, they are not NBA champions without getting Giannis Antetokounmpo um, right. Uh, and uh, you get that wrong. And what he was the... F- 15th player in the draft so 14 teams uh, decided to go in a different direction with him and it can have huge ramifications for your franchise but so much of it is is just wildly unpredictable it's i've always you know there, there come in both you know the nba and nfl draft for that matter you get these articles every year why are we so bad at drafting it's like well are we like what's the what is the the base success rate we could expect um, it's it's slightly different thing, but I've, I've done in the past. I've looked in, at like past McDonald's All American teams and looked at at you know how many of those players are drafted in the first round. And and <laughs> excuse me, especially in the, like the pre one and done era, you know if you're you're finding these high school seniors and you're and you like half the guys you identify are NBA first round picks. I think you're doing something pretty well, even though like the other half don't turn into anything. And um, and and that's sort of when you're talking about the draft, like what is the, what can we really expect as the best, like kind of hit rate? Um, I think it's 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 important to understand that you know a draft of sixty guys, 15, 20 of them will be long term rotational players in the NBA, of which five will really matter in terms of like swinging championship equity. So you know. The fact that those guys tend to go in the top ten, top fifteen, indicates they're actually doing pretty well to my to my to my mind overall. Now, obviously, you want to do better, and the competitive advantage is making those decisions better. And then, as you sort of alluded to, there's a kind of a luck factor involved. Like, was Giannis a good pick at fifteen? Yes. Was Giannis reasonably projectable as a multiple-time MVP when he was picked at fifteen? I, I don't think so. Like I think that's you know you've you're talking about hitting like a 99th percentile outcome there, and and you you know you could you can plan on that, but that's like you know it's buying lottery tickets. Um, <laughs> you know it usually does not come out in your favor. But were were the bucks that I was before I worked for the team were they correct in identifying something that he was going to he was likely to outperform that draft slot? I think so, but the degree of that is is where kind of the the, the the good fortune, um, both you know in terms of avoiding injury, but also the things that are kind of unknowable beforehand in terms of you know. But at this point, Giannis has a 
fairly legendarily drive and work ethic and, and kind of self-belief. You can sort of understand that in the draft, but how many guys every year in the draft is, this guy's a winner, or, or you know he's a gym rat, and they never get better for whatever reason. And, and so it's, it's like you can, you can look backwards and say, oh, that was knowable, but I, I don't know that it was. Okay, when we come back, we'll actually talk about uh, maybe some of the things that we can look at or rely on that might actually be helpful in helping us get better um, at projecting the NBA draft. Um, before we do so, I want to talk about prize picks. All right, NBA fanatics, have you heard about prize picks? Prize picks is a daily fantasy made easy. I love this, and I know you will too. Prize picks has the best NBA DFS prop game on the market. PrizePix offers more NBA props than any other DFS prop operator and offers all the superstar players as well as bench players only recording a handful of minutes each game. PrizePix offers any prop you can think of from yardage to touchdowns, even interceptions thrown. All of your users that deposit and use promo code will receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. Just be sure to use promo code NBA. You pick two to five players and an over and under on the projections, and you can win up to 10 times of any entry, and it's just you versus the projected numbers. Prize Picks allows mixed sports entries. You can take the over on LeBron combined with the under on Mahomes in the same entry. Use the award-winning app on both the App Store and Google Play. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or left. It's that easy. Prize Picks is safe and offers fast withdrawals. Don't hesitate. Check out prizepicks.com and use promo code NBA or go to the App Store and download the app today. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. All right, we are back talking NBA draft and analytics uh, with Seth Partnow, uh, NBA analyst for the Athletics, former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks, and author of the new book, The Midrange Theory, Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics. Got that right this time. So let's 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 dive into this a little bit, and you know, through your experience, you know, both with the Bucks and and now you're an analyst uh, with the Athletic as well. What tools are out there that can help us become smarter uh, about uh, analyzing draft picks? Like, what, what should we be paying attention to? I, I know you've said part of this is we, we try a lot of different things, and some things work, and some things don't. Some things seem relevant, some things aren't. In, in your mind, what are some things that, that we should be, be caring about when we're thinking about projecting NBA prospects? And I know, look, for, forget for a minute some of the obvious stuff like do background information, talk to the doctors, um, you know, you know things like that that we, we, we I think we, we understand. From an analytics perspective, what, what's, what's relevant out there? Um, the f- first one is, is sort of, and this, is, this one is an interesting one because it might be changing because it, uh, it's sort of one of those things that's out there enough that, that maybe people are altering behavior based on it. But I mean, pay attention how old a, old a prospect is. Like precocity is a is a is a pretty good predictor of of sort of future growth and success as a player. Like a, a, a player who is better than his peers at eighteen is kind of likely to continue being better than as they. Now, there's some caveats that obviously. I mean, I think we've all looked at the players who's you know the the physically dominant 16-year-old who's the best player in the gym because he's already had his growth spurt and and it's just, you know, 
no one can physically touch him and then never gets any better. So there are some things to, to worry about there. But just guys who are good early kind of tend to continue being good. Um, this one, this one, by the way, drives people uh, crazy who follow the draft. So, you know, Chris Duarte uh, in the draft, a 24-year-old uh, in the NBA draft, five and a half years older in some cases than some of the other prospects that are in the draft or, or you know, Corey Kispert or Davian Mitchell in last year's draft, all older. And, you know, for hardcore college basketball fans or what have you, no, take the guy that we know is going to be good right away. He's going to help our team win. Uh, and then, you know, you see Chris Duarte, you know, come out of the gate and, and score 27 points on, on opening night uh, in the NBA and a lot of told you so's. Uh, but this is a long, long-term game for the most part. Not so much Corey Kispert. Yeah, but yeah, not so much Corey Kispert. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think the, um, the, the, this is one that's hard for people to understand sometimes, right? That why do you take the 18-year-old that you're projecting down the road versus the 22 or 23-year-old guy that you know is good and probably is more physically ready to come in and play in the NBA right away? So I think this this kind of couple-year period is actually might be a really interesting um, sort of deviation from that norm just because of the I think the the kind of the the weirdness of kind of pandemic basketball and how that plays out through the development process and players entering the draft or not um, I think that might disrupt it to some degree so in this instance like you would you know in a in a normal environment would would Chris Duarte have been in the 2020 drafts maybe um, and, and so and, and he's still older, but not like as old. Um, and then the, the, uh, the, other, the other part of that is that there's also something that can get you, that can fool you a little bit there is there's a difference between being good at 18 and having potential at 18. And I think that oftentimes like players like are identified as having potential based on, you know, a big vertical leap or, or a high, like, you know, RCI ranking or something like that, and haven't actually proven themselves to be good. And that's a, I think that's a different thing than a player who comes in at 18, you know, Evan Mobley comes in and is utterly dominant at USC. Um, that's, you know, that that is, that's what we're talking about more than just a guy who is young. Because, you know, a guy can can come in, you know, the, I guess the counterexample might be Zach Levine, like enters the draft early having not really done much in college and then ends up as an all-star player. Uh, but that's, I think that's, that's an exception almost rather than the rule to that sort of player who hasn't really done it yet. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it, I start thinking about UCLA players. Russell Westbrook was similar, so ignore me on that one. But um, that's, that's sort of a... Um, that's a big one. There are there are certain statistical indicators that um, um, that tend to indicate guys can think do things. Um, you know, if you're looking at a guy's shooting touch, I've often said that it, I'm not. A lot of people have noted that uh, free throw percentage is often a better indicator of kind of touch than college three point percentage, um, especially because the variety of kind of threes that college players take is is pretty wide. So the difference between you know the ones that uh, you can. Uh, the, the classic example is probably Derek Williams at Arizona, right? He shot fifty some percent his his last year at Arizona on not that many attempts, all of which were sort of standstill, toast to the line threes. Whereas some other another like higher level shooting prospect is going to be taking off the dribble twenty six footers and 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 stuff like that. So their three point percentage is not necessarily the indicator, but. 
but their sh- their raw shooting ability might show up more in free throw percentage. And then the the biggest one that's that's sort of the one that makes people kind of perk up a lot is steal steal rate. Um, and that's not necessarily a defensive indicator. It's sort of uh, in in the analytics community, it's sort of uh, a catch all of a combination of sort of functional athleticism and feel for the game that you know the the sort of mental speed to be in the right place early even if you're not the twitchiest athlete um and so that's one of those things that that has tended to translate with some sort of important caveats like Syracuse guards always have stupid steal rates because of the system they play and Players who play in more of a in you know Virginia or Arizona kind of pack line that tends to suppress them, but with that sort of caveat in mind, that's a that that is an indicator that tends to to bode well. Um, but beyond that, it's it's you just are looking for uh, almost the, the 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 totality of a player's statistical picture that matches players who previously had success. Um, and the best thing that can do, to my mind, is help avoid obvious mistakes rather than necessarily pick the guys who are definitely going to be good. Um, it's you know it's there's there's some degree of crapshoot, but if you can if you can lop off twenty percent of guys who are just I don't want to say hopeless but very low probability, you've given yourself a much better chance of hitting. And I think that's the biggest thing that. Uh, that statistical analysis can help with. Um, and apologies if that was a long-winded answer to four different questions. No, that's that's a that's a great answer. You know, uh, back when I was at ESPN working with Kevin Pelton, one of the things that I began to notice about his model was okay at the top. A lot of times, guys would float up at the top that just weren't going to ultimately be NBA players. But there was a line that you could sort of draw and say below this number, the hit rate goes just dramatically, dramatically down. And so one nice thing that it can kind of do is draw a line and say, okay, he's the, here's the prospects that we need to pay attention to because historically anybody that sort of falls below this line and this number just doesn't doesn't pan out in the NBA. And we're going to take the bet. Maybe there's an outlier out there that will, but we're going to, we're going to bet on the fact that we can focus on these sorts of players. And, and Kevin always told me he thought it, his, his model was better at elimination than necessarily telling you which guy to pick. Um, it could definitely help you not make a mistake by telling you which guy not to. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think I think the analogy I use in the book, and certainly the one I use in conversation all the time, is is the haystack. You're 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 looking for the needle in the haystack, and the the first most important thing that analytics can do is shrink the size of the haystack. You know, if you're you, you can. You're talking about the players who sort of pop a statistical model, but you can kind of look at and see mm, that's not going to work. You can get you can get to that reasonably easily, I think, if you have the time to study that player. But if you have to, you can't you can't really study in depth 500 players. You can do 40, 60, maybe maybe even a few more than that. So if you can if you can okay these 300 guys we can kind of push to the side for now unless something changes. These guys we'll look at a little bit more, and then we'll kind of sift some more out as the season goes along. And then as we get down to it, these are the, you know, what, 50, 75, 100 guys we really need to know. And then we can start to point out, okay, yeah, he's a statistical marvel, but he's a, you know, he's a slow mid-major five who plays with his back to the basket. 
is that an archetype that that is likely to do well in today's NBA? No, I mean, and and so you get you know the example of that might be a Jock Lawndale who then goes overseas, changes his game a little bit, becomes more of a face-up player, and now comes back to the NBA as a as as a, a possible NBA player, but with kind of his college profile, would would he just would not have worked in today's NBA. This is the current debate about Drew Timmy uh, of Gonzaga uh, right now as well, and and you know, okay, maybe the numbers are great. Um, but does his style of basketball work in in the modern NBA? And and, and that and that's always shifting, um, by the way, as, as you know. And and so I, I've been doing this long enough to know when those types of players would would easily be top ten picks. And and now sometimes those same players aren't considered anywhere close near the lottery um, because the game is changing. Let's let's talk about um, when when we come back. Let's talk a little bit about some some hits and misses uh, around the draft. But before I do so, let's talk about Built Bar. Uh, something for there's something for everybody at Built Bar. When you talk to Built Bar fan, they're definitely passionate about their faves. If you don't know the Built Bar flavors, well, you're missing out. There's coconut, cherry barcia, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, cookies and cream, German chocolate. My personal favorite is the coconut. It tastes like a Mounds Bar, dark chocolate on the outside, chewy on the inside. These things are delicious, but they're also healthy too. Most of the flavors have 17 to 18 grams of protein. Calories ranging from 130 to 180, only four to five grams of sugar, only four to five grams of net carbs. Order today and get your grasshopper cookie, your raspberry, or whatever you like. Built Bar is also the official protein bar of the US track and field team. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCK15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. Use promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. All right. Well, this would be a draft prospect, a draft podcast, if we didn't actually talk about some of these prospects. And and you know, I'm always interested whenever I get on other people that have had to do the draft of, you know, who are guys that you know your model or your scouting or whatever you know popped to you that were you know not obvious. Um, we call these the sorts of hits and misses. And you know, who are guys that you know, hey man, I really I really like this prospect and they and they just didn't didn't pan out. I always I always find this interesting. It's it's the it's a painful part about doing the job, Seth. Um, but um, I'm I'm gonna let you dig in. We'll start with your with maybe a hit or two. Um, guys that, that you were you were really high on um, that maybe got drafted lower than they should have uh, in the draft. Um is it is it cheating to say Luca as a as a guy who like I I mean I thought that was like him being the best prospect in that draft I thought was about as big a no-brainer as you can get. Um, is is it some of the discussion around, you know, well, you're like, you know, well, Mario Hazonia didn't. It's like, well, Mario Hazonia played like 14 minutes in Europe before he came over, and Luca just won EuroLeague MVP. What are we talking about here? Like, there was, I think that was, but lower down, um, I think what, I, I this is one I always come back to because it was sort of, the first guy who I was going, oh, let's take a look at this guy. When I uh, when I when I was started for the Bucks was Kenrich Williams. Was was, was he's not a great player, but is he's been a very solid player. And he was a guy who um, I believe went uh, at the time he was coming off a broken leg that had caused him to miss a year. But he was a, a guy who who made shots and rebounded the hell out of the ball and was kind of doing a lot of interesting things from a from a model standpoint. And and is you know. 
maybe not the most athletic player, but even if you, from a from a scouting standpoint, guy who makes a lot of good basketball plays, and I think all those things have kind of you know have kind of translated to being a useful NBA player, and he's he's kind of a guy you know on, as Oklahoma City is is sort of doing their their rebuild thing. He's been one of the players on their team that I've I've sort of thought that a a contender who needs kind of a a you know a bigger rotation wing type player should should see about kind of trying to get because I think you'd be a you know pretty useful bench guy for a, for a, for a playoff team. Um, in terms of misses, um, there's definitely a player type that I've that I've missed on high and a player time I type I've missed on low. Um, the player type I've missed on high, the archetype of it is probably Julian Wright. Mm. <laughs> uh, sort of the the uh, you're, hit, you're the, hitting the, home the, here. The, 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 the swing forward that has that's versatile, but you know there's a kind of there, there's versatile in like a Nick Batum sense where you're, or maybe an Otto Porter sense where you're you're versatile meaning you're good enough at everything that that you're pretty good you're you know above average or above at everything, and then there's the versatile player who's not actually good at anything. And so is it can can do a lot of different things poorly, and we'll try to do a lot of different things, and we'll do them not like egregiously bad, but none of them well. Um, and I think that's a player type I've tended to miss on in the past. Um, in terms of missing low, and a player type that I'm I'm sort of okay missing low is the sort of uh, one-dimensional scoring guard who kind of if he is not a high-level shot creator score just doesn't have any other ways of being good. Some of those players will be good, but I'm fine missing on those because I think that, you know, you look at, you know, for every, you know, pick a guy. For every, for every guy who sort of makes it from that group, there's how many, you know, Malik Monks or, 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 or players like that who just sort of never, who, who okay, he's a 37% three-point shooter and does nothing else. What does that get us? Um, so that's a that's a player type that I'm I'm oh I'm very okay to be to be wrong on the instance where this is the one guy in seven who did you know shoot at that level to 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 make it. Now people who are doing more kind of traditional scouting, they might have some indicators as to why this guy is going to be where another might, um, and I have a hard time evaluating that. Um, but that sort of get, gets back to what you said earlier. Um, if you have a track record and sort of have audited yourself to know that, okay, how often am I right when I think, no, this is the guy who's going to be a shooter? And if you have a good track record of that and you've been, you know, know when you've, when you've hit and when you've missed on that, um, I think that's, that's a useful piece of information that, that maybe doesn't work its way into a model, but works its way into sort of the, the decision process in a meaningful way. But that's sort of that's that's a little bit outside my area. So kind of I'll, I'll, a little bit. Okay, prove to me that, that I should take I should you know take take uh, take stock of what you're saying, and then I'll 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 take stock of it. Kind of. Is this a polite way of saying that if you were the Rockets in the 2021 NBA draft, that Jalen Green would not have been your selection um, at two? Uh, no, I mean Ed Mobley would have been the selection there. But at the same time, I mean. For a team in the Rockets' position, like some degree of risk preference is, I think, appropriate. You're getting into the sort of the, the game theory of 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 how to draft. Um, you know, the Rockets need superstars, and you know, evaluating superstar potential is, is pretty difficult. But 
you know, while my evaluation might not be that, might be that Evan Mobley had more kind of reasonable upside than Jalen Green, I can totally see how you get there with Jalen Green in terms of, of, okay, this is a guy who, okay, right now wing superstars are what wins in the NBA. Cade's off the board. This is the guy who has the best chance of that. I can I can see that logic, and it's it's credible, even if my I might have gone a different way. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 going to be this this draft class, this 2021 draft class, looks like it's going to be you know one for the ages as far as right now early on you know the way that that so many prospects are are looking interesting and look like they're going to stick and and many of them look like they could be really really good. So uh, I'm I'm curious I, on your draft board was it Cade and then Evan Mobley one and two uh, for you uh, coming into the draft? Mm-hmm. I so I didn't I didn't I didn't really do a formal board this year, um, um, but mainly because I didn't have to. <laughs> um, but that was I like Cade one Mobley two. I think I was I was lower on Green and Suggs than consensus. Uh, um, lower, uh, frankly, lower on, on on Franz Wagner as well. So that's it's not like I got everything right or anything. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, those were I think those were to, to my mind the, the sort of the, the, the two top. Um, I, I kind of thought it was a it was it was a two player draft at the top. Um, but I, I think yeah, I and I at this point I would reverse just based on what we've seen, not um, not denigrating Kate in any way. Just a lot of the questions one might have had about Mobley have sort of already been answered in the positive in a way that, oh, if he can do that, then yeah, no, this, 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 this will be good. Um, seeing a, seeing a rookie be this good defensively, uh, this early on, I'm trying to think about the last time that we've seen a rookie come back, come in and have this sort of defensive impact, which is usually the, the thing that takes longer, uh, most of the time. And then when you see Mobley's offensive upside, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to argue that if if the trajectory keeps up, that that Kate or anybody's going to be able to catch um, what what Mobley might be able to potentially do uh, in the NBA. We're one month into the season. Yeah, I still think Kate has a chance to be really good. Like, I, you know, he 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 had a tough shooting start, having no training camp and coming off an injury. But I think in the last couple of weeks, we've kind of started to see some of the. Some of the stuff that that people who liked him liked about him. Um, he's maybe not a player who lended himself well to sort of highlight scouting. I think he was someone who who rewarded kind of view, like a little bit like Luca in this way, in that you know the maybe the an athleticism doesn't pop off the charts, but just the consistent good basketball playmaking is is one of those things that 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 starts to uh, interest you. And with Cade, especially. Uh, on the defensive end, on in, you know at Oklahoma State was was um, for a player of that sort of ball handling, uh, ball dominant profile, his his sort of defensive uh, willingness and acumen was something that stood out. But you know we'll we'll see. I don't have to I don't have to sell Cade Cunningham anymore. We'll we'll, uh, we'll time will tell whether or not he, he's actually going to be a pretty good NBA player or not. He's Seth Partno, NBA analyst at the Athletic. And author of his new book, The Midrange Theory, Basketball Evolution in the Age of Analytics. You can get the, the, the books out. Uh, congratulations. It's uh, available everywhere. I had a great, I re- read it, really, really enjoyed it. And for those of you that are worried a little bit, oh, this is a book about analytics, uh, it's very accessible. Uh, I don't think you have to have a background in statistics or math to, to be able to understand this book. Seth does a, a great job of, of making all of this really accessible and I think really shining light 
uh, on to what's happening in MBA front offices right now. So great job on the book and really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks. I, I, I'll just back up what you said. I think I think I have two equations total in the book, uh, in, in, in the body of the book. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I knew I had to have at least one or else they'd uh, they'd pull my union card. But uh, um, but yeah, no, I tried to. That was that was definitely what I was aiming for. So I appreciate you saying that. All right. You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Aloha. Aloha.